This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to this episode of New Books in Latin American Studies. Today we're speaking with Dr. Courtney J. Campbell about her new book, Region Out of Place, The Brazilian Northeast and the World, 1924 to 1968, just out with the University of Pittsburgh Press in 2022 here. Courtney Campbell is Associate Professor of Latin American History at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Um, This book of hers stems from her PhD research at Vanderbilt University, which in turn is based on her ME research at the Universidad Federal de Pernambuco in Recife, where she lived for about six years, former Peace Corps volunteer in Paraguay uh, in the early 2000s. She did her undergraduate work in languages, BA in Spanish, minor in international studies, BA in French at the University of Michigan, Flint. Most of her writing focuses on social and cultural history of 19th and 20th century Brazil. She's currently working on a couple of new projects that I'll ask her to tell us about um, by way of conclusion at the end. I'd also like to mention she's co-editor of the 2019 volume, Empty Spaces, Perspectives on Emptiness in Modern History. Dr. Campbell, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real honor to be here. I wonder if we could begin by you telling us a little about the origins of this book, Region Out of Place, and just kind of uh, what led you to researching the history of the Brazilian Northeast, um, this important region, and asking these particular questions? Sure. Uh, It's a bit of a long story, and so I'm going to try to give you the short version. Uh, I I lived in Brazil, in Recife, for several years. And during that time, I did some postgraduate study, and I taught English. I studied education while I was in Brazil, and initially that was through a one-year specialization Uh, course that was more focused on pedagogy. But for my master's, I was accepted into the Center for Education of the Federal University of Pernambuco, as you mentioned, in Hisifi, which I kind of outside of that area would be better known as the Paulo Freire Center. So it was a it was a real enormous honor to be there. There was a real rigorous application process and and my Portuguese was it was still getting better, let's put it that way. So I was really nervous about it. And I had the, the great luck to uh, work with Professor Flavio Braine while I was there. He supervised my dissertation research. And I, I worked while I was doing that dissertation research. It was on the history of the teaching of English in Hisifi. I was measuring that history against this concept of, of linguistic imperialism. So at that time, it was really kind of combining my two activities in Brazil, that I lived in Brazil, that I was teaching, and I was teaching English, and I was interested in the region. When I applied to PhD programs in in the U.S., uh, I had had initially intended 
to expand that project and, and look more broadly at U.S. cultural influence in the in the northeast of Brazil. But it's it's kind of a funny thing. When, when I was there in Brazil, in Recife, my interest was in how U.S. culture was imported and consumed in the region. Um, but when I left, my interest kind of shifted to, to look more at the region itself and how people within the Northeast uh, chose to participate in different interactions with various peoples and cultures and not limiting it anymore to just the United States and U.S. influence. Um, I did my PhD at Vanderbilt University under the supervision of Marshall Aiken um, and, and with a heavy dose of support from Celso Castillo, who also had spent a, a lot of time researching in, in his CFI. Uh, and somewhere during that time, I can't remember precisely where, I read Duval Moniz de Albuquerque Jr.'s book, The Invention of the Northeast. And it was a real, it really... I don't know, it, it really shifted my way and my perspective of looking at, at the history that I was interested in. Um, his book, looking at, at, at the region and its identity as a discursive formation, right? A book which you, re a book which you reference extensively uh, uh, here in your book. Yes, yeah, it was a, it's a really influential book in, in, in all you know, Brazilian history, but especially in, in looking at regional identity in Brazil. And I think it has implications. It should really go much broader, too. It was recently translated to English and published by Duke, if I remember correctly, uh, with, a, with a foreword by Jim Green, by James Green from, from Brown, too. So it's, a, it's an important book. And, and it really changed the way that I was looking at, at my own interests in, in the country. And um, Duval's book uh, focuses on you know, the development of regional identity and this idea that the Northeast was a recent formation. This isn't something that had existed in the 19th century. There was no Northeastern region. There was the vast North, right? And so he's looking at how the Northeast came into existence in that way. And uh, my interest being international and, and how the international is involved in that, I came up with some, what I, what I refer to as episodes in Northeastern history that I thought highlighted uh, the, the kinds of international interaction that I'm that I'm interested in, aiming to get um, a sense of how ideas about the region were discussed and forged through these international events. I don't remember what the list of the initial events that I came up with were in, in my brainstorming because, um, to be honest, it really changed in my in my field work when I went down to Brazil to do research. I applied for a, a Fulbright Hayes doctoral research fellowship, but Congress uh, defunded it that year. Uh, yeah, it's a, a, interesting times. Uh, fortunately, the Mellon Foundation swooped in and decided to fund uh, some or all, I, I'm not really sure, of the humanities candidates. And uh, the Institute for International Education administered that uh, with some support within Brazil from Fulbright, Brazil still, who offered some administrative support too. So I was still able to do my research in Brazil despite uh, Congress's bad decision. And uh, that's that's where when most of the archival research for my for my book took place. I went I did research in, in nine different states while I was there. I traveled through the Brazilian Northeast uh, to make sure that that the research I was doing wasn't just centered on Recife and Pernambuco. Uh, and I also went to some southern archives in Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo as well. And, and during that research, the episodes changed, the timeline changed, my whole understanding of the phenomenon changed, to be honest. Uh, and that research is what led to my PhD thesis. And that thesis I then revised significantly for this book, particularly 
in, in a couple of chapters that I think that'll probably come out in the course of our conversation. Uh, and, and in many ways, you can then see that this book has been in process for a very, very long time. Yes, indeed. And you spent six years, you said, living in Brazil, right? I mean, that's a that's an important piece of it. Um, yeah, right. absolutely. And, and then, of course, you know, I went back during during my PhD studies. I went back every summer to do research, and I spent that other year doing field work there too. So it it was definitely a long time um, coming. <laughs> We're going to go through um, some of these episodes that you mentioned that are that are highlighted in the book because they're really fascinating and unique, and I think they they bring in a lot of uh, historical actors that that uh, people um, other than Brazilianists or people familiar with um, Brazil will will indeed recognize here. Um, this contribution, it seems to me, Courtney, uh, region out of place as a contribution to Latin American historiography is Im- important in a, in a couple of ways. Um, and you've talked about some of it, I think, but it's especially in moving beyond um, nation as a kind of default uh, scale or framework for uh, the way we do research and think about the Americas more broadly. Um, and this seems to be a really clear uh, articulation, fresh conceptualization of region in Latin America laid out in the book's introduction in a very effective way. And then illustrated with um, some of the episodes that you mentioned from the twenties through the sixties, and even uh, referencing some other uh, interesting recent, more recent developments. Um, so if you could just tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the main uh, thrust of, of, of the book and the main points you're trying to make, main arguments and contributions as you see them. Thank you. Um, sure. I, I'll try. I'll try. Bro- I try to go broad first and narrow down to more specific. <laughs> uh, the, the book looks at the development of regional identity in the Brazilian Northeast. And it does so by examining how the region's inhabitants engaged in different international events. And some of those international events are in Brazil, some of them are abroad. But in each of them, in some way, there are Northeasterners participating. I try to look at uh, a really broad cross-section of society. So the the episodes or stories that we're looking at here uh, range from uh, intellectuals and cinematographers to fishermen from young women that were dating U.S. soldiers to beauty queens. And in doing so, the, the book makes a few key points. Uh, the first is that the development of subnational regional identities was happening around the world as part of the development of national identities, that these two things are, are connected. And as the development of national identities is also tied to the development of notions of race and ethnicities, then so is the development of these subnational regional identities. That said, as you mentioned, regional identity wasn't limited to national borders and, and it often is imagined as being so, right? That you have subnational regional identity, it fits within the nation and, and that's it. Uh, but I think, especially in the case of the Brazilian Northeast, and I'm certain that this is true in other regions too, regional identity was forged with both national and international spheres and interactions uh, in mind. 
um, importantly then, or maybe even essentially, these, these regional identities might have been pushed as stereotypes coming from the nation, from the national scale, or described by regional intellectuals um, or even promoted by regional intellectuals, but they weren't owned by the state, they weren't owned by the center of the nation, and they weren't owned by intellectuals. The, the working poor, the drought-stricken migrant, the beauty queen, the local press, a popular poet singing in a city square, teachers trying to teach adults how to read so that they could vote, they all took part in this process of developing a regional identity in, in the Brazilian Northeast. And they all did so aware that the region was also interacting with the world and often skipping over the national scale purposefully in order to get their story out there to, to be heard. Uh, I use this framing then of stepping out of place, the, the title being region out of place. I, I use the, the framing of stepping out of place to understand both of these transgressions, that the region is stepping out of the place within the nation that it's expected to be in. It's dis disrupting that spatial hierarchy that we assume by stepping into the international sphere. And that the Northeasterner, uh, particularly the poor, black, and mixed race Northeasterner, steps out of the social space expected for them as well, also engaging internationally. And I believe there are implications here for understanding not only region, but nation, when we talk about culture and the development of cultural identities here, and uh, that perhaps the nation too needs to be understand as a very understood as a very limited metaphor for that imagined community that Benedict Anderson told us about. Uh, the region isn't contained to the nation, but perhaps the nation isn't necessarily contained to itself either. Um, coming back specifically to the Northeast, uh, this book is showing then in, in terms of cultural identity, by the late 1960s, we end up with this kind of grab bag full of characteristics that describe the Northeast, sometimes contradictorily, uh, that are used to describe and understand it, and, and from which people can kind of pull depending on what we are talking about, who we are talking to, and, and for what purposes. And someone could say the Northeast is poor and underdeveloped, or that the Northeast is vibrant and culturally rich, that it's backwards and in need of state intervention, uh, or in need of international aid, or that it's the real authentic Brazilian culture. It's where the North, where, where Brazilian culture was born and where it resides, where it needs to be protected from outside influence. Uh, but then again, in, in other ways of understanding it, the Northeast is rebellious, violent even, and needs protection from no one at all. But all of these ideas were forged by crossing various geographic scales from local, regional, national, international, and importantly, by disregarding any kind of geographic hierarchy at all within that. Could you orient uh, those of us not familiar with the geography? I mean, Brazil itself, uh, the national territory is enormous, of course, uh, in relation to what all the other uh, nations of Latin America. Um, and what cities, for instance, Recife and Pernambuco, right, are in uh, the northeastern region, correct? Yeah. So, so Brazil is understood as being divided into several regions, as most countries are, right? 
Um, you have the northern region where you have the Amazon and such. You have um, uh, next to it then the northeast, which isn't necessarily always to the north or to the east, but whatever. You have the south and the southeast, the center west. Uh, and these, these regions, the idea about their borders and what is contained within them, what isn't contained within them has also changed over time. So these are not static uh, they they change. There there will be people who still will say that Bahia is not of the Northeast um, because they are of it. They were born in a time when Bahia wasn't considered part of the Northeast, uh, and others who will firmly consider Bahia to be the Northeast, for example. So these these aren't static um, uh, geographic designations. But how it's generally understood is that the Northeast currently contains nine states. But then, I mean, just by noting that there's nine states and the vastness of the territory of uh, what's considered the Northeast, um, I mean, we should understand that it's just a heterogeneous and diverse region, right? So that's part of what uh, enables all of these uh, projections in terms of Northeastern identity that are across the spectrum, right, from rebellious to uh, backward to the other things that you mentioned. Absolutely. And, and, and each of these different states have their own state identities within that regional identity, and which are often in conflict with the other states within the Northeast. So there isn't necessarily even agreement within the Northeast of what Northeastern regional identity is. And, and so it's, it's very much multivalent um, and, and varied. Um, so in, in, the, the main cities you, you'd ask for, for example, in Fortaleza, in Ceará, uh, the idea of what it means to be Northeastern is very different than what it would be in Recife, in Pernambuco, uh, in Salvador, in Bahia, in Jor Pessoa, in Paraíba, in, in Natal, in Rio Grande do Norte. So um, it's, it's very much a, a heterogeneous, culturally rich place that uh, is also a very large territory. Yes. Um, I think chapter one provides some really important um, background for us in terms of uh, talking about the history of drought in the Northeast and then also uh, migration, you know, either as a result of drought conditions and all that came with it or for other reasons. Could you talk a little bit about about drought and migration, and then introduce uh, introduce us, Courtney, to Cordell literature, uh, which is an important source for your book here? Sure. So the the Northeast is known as being a place that's defined as drought, and in fact, it was drought that initially defined the region, which is uh, a point that Duval Muniz de Albuquerque Jr. did made very well in in his work. Uh, the, there were recurrent droughts in the Northeast in what is now known as the Northeast that was once just known as the drought region. And, um, some of them were absolutely devastating, uh, droughts towards the end of the 19th century in which, uh, that, that coincided with smallpox, for example, and, and, and ended up devastating and, uh, a large amount of the population, particularly the enslaved. Uh, and, with the birth of the nation, with the declaration of the, the proclamation of the Republic in 1889, when Brazil stopped being an empire and became a republic, uh, it became important to 
modernize the nation, right? To become a modern nation. And, and, and that means um, one that can face the world uh, with, with a certain level of pride as well. So it became important to tackle these problematic regions, prob- these problems in the region, drought being the primary problem. So several institutions and agencies were created at the federal level to try to um, deal with the drought uh, to varying levels of, of success. Um, and and they, were never, they were never going to be very successful in, because they were focused on on responding to a phenomenon that will always recur. It's part of the, well, it's part of the geography of the region. It's part of the geography of the world. Um, so you're not going to change the drought. You have to learn to deal with it. And uh, this- because, but, to, uh, mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that because um, droughts there go back to, I mean, as long as we have records, basically, right? I mean, you've got a table um, in Chapter 1 that, that um, shows from 1559 to 1966 uh, the recurrence of drought years, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and they're part and parcel of a, of a, of a like I said, a, you know, winds and, and such around the world um, that are influenced by things like El Nino, uh, and, and other effects. So, um, yeah, they, they are they are recurring. They they are they are part of the geography, the climate of the of the region. Uh, but because the 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 politics, the policies put in place to deal with the drought weren't focused on helping the poor. Right, that were actually devastated routinely by the drought, and so along with these kind of recurrent droughts, you also get recurrent migration um, in the region from the backlands, which is referred to as the Sertão. So from the backlands out to the coast. So often this migration took place within the same state or at least within the same region, going to the more uh, coastal cities, or it went from the northeast to the Amazon, or from the northeast down to the south or southeast. Uh, where the the migrants would then go to find work and either send money home and return later or stay permanently. Uh, many of these migrants took with them a popular Northeastern literary art, literary genre referred to as Cordell literature. literature. Cordell is basically uh, a, a kind of poetry that is very democratic in the sense that all you need to do it is some kind of printing press or typewriter and one piece of paper. Uh, It is eight pages. It's one piece of paper that's folded into into quarters and then cut so that you have eight pages. And um, it tends to follow one of two different rhyme schemes. So it's very... um, uh, uh, it's it's easy to to know what you're expecting out of the rhyme scheme, and it historically was read al- out loud. So either read out loud in, in squares or read out loud to other people, and this of course helped to make it easier for uh, non-literate populations to also have access to this popular genre. And of course, all literature. It covers everything. You'll find in Cordell literature explanations of of Galileo's 
discoveries, you'll find campaigns against um, or campaigns for safe sex. Um, you'll find, um, but but the most of the most of the topics have to do with the Northeast and and um, and what Northeasterners deal with in, in different ways. Some in very fan you know um, fictional ways, some in non-fictional ways. And a big chunk of that genre then is migrant literature. That is the the migrant Northeasterner writing about their experience as a migrant, and that is what this first chapter um, focuses on. In the second and the latter half of the chapter, it focuses on that art by Northeastern migrants and how the migrants went with this thought that they were going to, you know, go to another Brazil, another part of Brazil, but in the end found that they were going essentially to a foreign country and that they were foreigners in that country. They didn't dress the same. They didn't talk the same. They were treated poorly. They were treated as if they were foreigners, as if they weren't real Brazilians. And 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 so uh, this chapter is framed in a way that is meant to show that the first contact with the other, with the foreigner, with the more cosmopolitan person was actually within Brazil um, in, in, in that sense. And what were some of the common tropes that you found in narratives about migration in 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 that popular literature? They uh, focused like the Exodus. I noticed the Exodus mm -hmm. as a, the biblical reference um, as one. Yes, the way and and the the whole um, arduous uh, migration, right? The 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 vehicles that were used, the the difficulties involved. Uh, one of the tropes was being fooled. There was a lot of, of we were told that we would do this, but instead we were forced into this. There's some uh, a trope of forced migration and escape. Uh, there's also a common trope about saudade, about missing the the northeast, about longing for this region, and and in in these kind of lists of things that the authors put of what they missed about the region. They're also defining what the region is. So they list the foods that they miss, uh, the events that they miss, uh, rodeos and, and, and cattle um, roundups and, and different saints festivals that are, uh, that are commonly celebrated in the Northeast, like San Juan, um, different foods, different music, different dances. And in doing so, they're really defining what Northeastern culture is in contrast to what they're finding in the South and Southeast uh, another trope is of return and of how upon return, many of them felt that they had to hide. Uh, they had to hide what their experience was in the South and Southeast in order to not feel foolish. And um, in doing so, others, other Cordelistas, other Cordell writers say that they fooled others into going into thinking that it was, you know, everything is great. Go to the South Southeast. Um, they talk a lot about uh, their clothing and, uh, and, and, as I mentioned, about talking differently, about how their speech is different. Too. Tell us a little bit about uh, the well-known Brazilian sociologist Gilberto Freire and um, his role in the formation of Northeastern cultural identity and kind of defining the North, the Northeast as a region and just his role in um, thinking about and uh, creating networks to think about regionalism. So Gilberto Freire was from Recife. 
and he uh, he was educated initially in a Baptist America, the American Baptist School, it was called, and so a, a lot of the teaching was in English, uh, and they forged ties with Baylor University in Texas. Uh, Gilberto Freire then became incredibly mobile. He did some studies at Baylor. He also went to Columbia and did studies with famous anthropologists. He spent some time touring Europe and meeting other uh, regionalists in in Europe. And so while he was away, he started in, in much the same way that the Cordelistas do, you go away and you start reflecting on your home, your, your hometown, the place, your place of origin, and feel like you get a better understanding of it, right? So he starts writing for the Diario de Pernambuco, a uh, famous newspaper, long-running newspaper in, in Pernambuco, um, about the Northeast and, and its regional identity and, um, and about his travels. When he comes back to Hisifi, uh, he joins some other intellectuals, regionalist intellectuals, in starting a regionalist center in Hisifi and also in organizing a regionalist conference. And at that regionalist conference, he invites people that he had met during his travels. Um, there are roundtables on food, on dance, on literature, on politics. It was a very dynamic uh, conference taking place in 1926 in Hisifi. And, and they really start to, to set into intellectual terms what the Northeast is. And they're, they're really doing so against that, against that initial definition that the region is only drought, suffering, migration. Uh, and then they're saying, but it's so much more. This is what our identity is. So very early on, um, we see the development of a, of a cultural identity coming out through these, these regionalists, the most important of which, arguably, was Gilberto Freire. Um, early on in that, the earliest mentions that we have of the Northeast as a region is, is around 1919, 1920. So for, for them to already be forming this in 1926 to say the region is so much more than, than just this geography uh, is, is really significant. Um, Freire also writes a manifesto referred to as the Regionalist Manifesto, and there's a whole debate about when it was written. He says it was written in 1926, but it wasn't. It wasn't published until 1954. So one can assume that there were there was much revision that took place in, in that time. But in, in many ways, this Regionalist Manifesto is a is kind of a product of or a mixture of, of many of his writings in that time. It presents the region as, um, as, as a cultural identity, as uh, defined by foods, which is important. It, it, he, it, he makes a point of pointing out um, that it is women that are, that are making these foods. So he also genders the region to a certain extent. Uh, he refers to the work that goes into creating culture and art and working the land. And he makes sure to mention race and the different categories of people who are working it. Um, and, and so he offers up this, this racialized and gendered view of the Northeastern region and its identity. But he also places this within a really broad global regionalist 
uh, movement, as he refers to it. So there was a what he calls a regionalist conference in in um, Charlottesville, uh, which was actually it was a regionalist roundtable within another conference, but still. Uh, he refers to this and and the intellectuals in the United States that had been working on race and uh, region. He, Is it Charlottesville, Virginia? Yes, absolutely. Yes, okay. uh, at the at the University of Virginia, in fact. Um, yes. He refers to uh, different French intellectuals like Charles Mohas. He refers to um, Scandinavian intellectuals working on on region or that create regional arts. Um, he, he makes a point of saying this isn't just about Brazil or about the Northeast of Brazil. And he's doing so because he's clever <laughs> and he knows that Brazilians really care, uh, as many other people do, uh, about what the world thinks of their nation. And so this he wants to say we're not we're not lesser because we have this regional identity. We're part of a whole European and North American movement, right? Um, that this is happening around the world. And, and he's not wrong. It was. <laughs> That's part of the argument of my book. So um, it, it was in many ways taking place around the world at this time, these discussions of, of what subnational regions are and uh, what their place is within the nation. Yeah, because I, I tend to think of that period, you, you talk in the context of uh, Freire, 20s to r r 50s or so, as a kind of a high tide of nationalism around the world, in a sense. Um, and then, but you're saying also, and as a key element of the construction of that, in many places at least, uh, regionalism uh, was was central to it. What, uh, how about the uh, remarkable story of um, the four Brazilian fishermen from the northeastern region and their protest in 1941 that, that drew international attention, including uh, Orson Welles? Could you tell us a little bit about the four fishermen and Orson Welles? Yeah, this is such a great story. I love this story so much. Um, it's so... There are, uh, fishing is a trade along the northeastern coast, which shouldn't be surprising. And the, the fishermen along the northeastern coast, they use a, a specific type of, of sail raft. It's, it's what we would understand as a raft of logs kind of lashed together with a sail. It's fairly rustic. Um, it is referred to as a jangada. So they are called jangadeiros. And these, there's a tradition uh, tied with them of, of a certain level of social activism. Um, there were Jean Gadeiros in, in during abolitionism in Ceará um, that, um, that shut down a port that was supposed to transport enslaved Africans uh, or Afro-Brazilians from the Northeast down to the South, for example. Um, and they also were associated with these great feats of distance uh, known as they call them raids, which is Hades, which is uh, um, or Hades, which is very much descended from the English term. But what they mean by that is how far can you go, right? So, uh, so they kind of combine these four fishermen combine these two ideas that are associated with them, and they decide 
to protest that the president of Brazil's new social and, and labor laws that are being put into place um, don't include them. They There are, you know, uh, Getúlio Vargas put in place, or his administration at least, put in place um, uh, things like pensions, the right to pension, or the right to a minimum wage. And and because the jangadeiros, their trade wasn't included as in the list of professions, they didn't have the right to these things. And they wanted to bring his attention to this. So they uh, pulled together the resources. Uh, they planned this for a very long time. In fact, the leader of this, um, of this feat, Jacare, as he was referred to, uh, learn to read and write just to be able to, to write a letter to Vargas. And they set out from Fortaleza in the state of Ceará and, and, to, to make this point. And when they did, it was also, as luck would have it, right in the early days of the Associated Press in Brazil that was being formed. So the Associated Press picked up on the story and started publishing little snippets about every stop that they made. So they they would make little stops along the way uh, at, at the key cities, and there would be an article in, in all of the newspapers of the Associate Press in Brazil saying the, the four fishermen, the brave, stoic, northeastern fishermen have arrived in such and such a city or town. Um, or the brave, stoic, northeastern fishermen uh, have not been heard from for days. Are they lost at sea? And they'd create this intrigue. And, and so initially, nobody really knew about them. But by the time before, well before they left the Northeast, they already became these kind of national heroes. And people were following their story to the point that when they arrived in Rio de Janeiro to make their point, they were met with great fanfare. A lot of uh, you know crowds came to meet them. Uh, their jangada was carried down the street and, and they donated it to the white, to the first lady, the, the um, Getulia Vargas's wife. Uh, and they met with him on the street, face to face, surrounded by crowds. And Jacare spoke to him for an hour. I found this story so incredible. Uh, and, and they effectively changed the labor law. Now, there were things that didn't change and they were still unsatisfied with it. They did try to do um, future raids in the, in the future, but still they made this massive change to labor law was that a planned meeting or or did they just sort of uh, uh find vargas where he was at that day and, and no by the time they got to rio de janeiro things started to get really orchestrated so they could have come into rio de janeiro earlier for example and they stayed at sea for a couple of days so that they could come in on a national holiday so they they really did things became very um media focused, right? Uh, very public facing. Um, and it, part of this media uh, focus led to the New York Times publishing a very, not New York, was it New York? Yes, New York Times. <laughs> um, and uh, Life Magazine, Time Magazine, sorry, publishing a very short snippet about the raid and about the four fishermen. It was just called Four Men on a Raft. Very short little article. Um, that Orson Welles read while he was in New York and said, this is amazing. I want to include it in this, this movie that I'm making uh, as part of a good neighbor project, um, uh, intercultural exchange between the United States and Brazil. 
Wells had, was making this film that had several chapters in it, and he decided that one of those chapters would be on Brazilian carnival, and one of them would focus on this 1941 fisherman's raid. But he uh, wanted to use the actual fishermen as actors. And with the carnival chapter, he also wanted to use the actual artists and carnival goers as the actors. And this, this becomes problematic for, for several reasons. Um, one of which is, uh, that Jacare dies during the filming. Um, there was an accident when they were pulling the raft in, in, in a bay in Rio de Janeiro and he falls off the raft and he's never seen again, uh, which devastates Wells. It devastates everybody and puts an end essentially to, to the filming. Um, there is, but also that the... The fishermen were were lauded as these amazing Brazilians, these resilient Stoic Northeasterners, the example of what Brazilians should actually strive to during during their um, their journey from from Ceará to to Rio de Janeiro. But once they became, once they entered Hollywood and and were to be projected on this international screen, then it was seen that they had stepped out of their place. And that they shouldn't be doing that. That this isn't not this isn't how we want the world to see us as these mixed race, poor, semi literate or illiterate um, fishermen. So the uh, Brazilian censorship agencies step in. The U.S. Um, uh, the, the RKO also um, starts to to create obstacles, and the and the film was never actually finished. Uh, it, it, it was left without a soundtrack. It's a remarkable story. You've got so much uh, packed into this book. Um, I hate to get you to jump around so much, but um, thinking about the World War II period, Cold War period in Brazil, especially early Cold War, um, what about the episode uh, with Coca-Cola, women in the Brazilian Northeast and U.S. soldiers in the region. Sure. So the uh, in in World War II, Brazil offers up it goes into an agreement with the United States that that uh, the U.S. can put military bases along the northeastern coast, seeing this as a strategic for a couple of reasons to block any potential invasion um, of of uh, Nazi Germany into into Allied territories. Uh, and also because it is the the, the shortest navigation point uh, between the Americas and or between Latin America and um, and Africa, so they put in several. The U.S. puts in several naval and air bases. For the most part, there's a blimp base as well. And during this time, then you have a lot of young uh, North Americans, U.S. Americans uh, in the region, and most of them men. And uh, so there are many stories of, of young women who dated, young Brazilian Northeastern women who were dating these U.S. soldiers. And, and all of the, the stories that go along with that of, you know, brawls between the soldiers and the, and the locals, um, but also of um, the spread of venereal diseases like syphilis. Um, and 
the the narrative why why coca-cola oh yes uh girls so at that time the only place that you could get coca-cola in brazil was at the bases and so the girls who dated the u.s soldiers would be referred to as coca-cola girls um and this kind of came to to be after the war when the war ends and the soldiers go home and the coca-cola girls are are left behind, abandoned, seen as abandoned. This becomes kind of a metaphor for understanding um, not only these girls, but the entire region that would give itself so easily to these U.S. American soldiers just to be fooled and left abandoned and alone. So it becomes a uh, a Coca-Cola girl becomes kind of a disparaging term. And even the there's a carnival block that, that is made in which the men dress up as Coca-Cola girls with their names emblazoned on these bonnets, uh, in order to to mock the the girls who dated uh, U.S. soldiers. Thanks, Courtney. Uh, you have a chapter in the book uh, about football, about soccer, um, specifically about the uh, ideas about northeastern regional identity uh, and how those circulated in discussions of World Cup football. Yeah, there was a World Cup match. There was uh, the World Cup was hosted in Brazil in, in 1950, or rather, Brazil hosted the World Cup in 1950. And so, the uh, there were northeasterners who rallied to get at least one match played in Recife. There was a whole movement behind it. They got Jules Hime himself to come and and visit and see where they could, what stadium they could use, and they did end up hosting. One um, one match at the Iludujitiro Stadium between the U.S. and Chile, and uh, ultimately, the point of this chapter is to show how these discussions were about about the Northeast, um, that the Northeast deserves to show itself to the world as well, that uh, that they needed this opportunity to to engage in this to show the world what Northeast what the Northeast has to offer, while there were also real serious points of, of embarrassment and, and worries that that what the world would see wouldn't be positive. Uh, so this was very much framed as how do we get around the nation so that we can actually show the world what we have. And then I really like throughout this book, Courtney, how you like, um, maybe it's in every chapter, but, but certainly it's in um, several of them, how you uh, start and end many chapters with this kind of tight, uh, analysis of of a particular source like uh, regional art uh, about the World Cup and how that uh, can tell us something about Northeastern identity. Um, I just thought that's a really uh, cool aspect of the of the book. I don't know if you want to say anything about that kind of uh, source usage or analysis. Um, sure. I mean, I mean, thank you for that. It's I think. The regional art also gives the opportunity to show how these conversations and about the Northeast go beyond just that moment. So with, you know, the World War II moment, yes, I talk about the dating and the sex work and the marriages that come out of that moment of the soldiers and the Northeastern women. But it's really just as much about the art that comes out in the Cold War period that talks about that, right? So it's as much about the Cold War as it is about World War II. And with the case of the football chapter do the same thing, right? I talk about the 1950 World Cup and the discussions around it, the debates around it, how it was carried out. 
But we end on the discussion of art about the 1950s World Cup and beyond and Cordell literature on um, the World Cup in, in Brazil or Brazil in the World Cup and how how what's being discussed is, again, the Northeast on an international stage. And you note how that like the concluding sentence of that chapter on page 134, for instance, is while Northeastern identity is defined by intentional intellectual definitions, its character comes to life in art, everyday discussions, and noisy debate. Um, how about Miss Brazil, Miss Universe, and ideas of beauty, uh, race, class, etc. cetera, uh, uh, in northeast brazil um and there was a the 2017 uh miss brazil uh is the first uh you know northeastern miss brazil who is also black and that's kind of how you start yes and she um uh mona lisa alcantara is her name she gives um an interview she talks about um uh, she talks about her position as a black northeastern woman and and how that means that she is um, that she she suffers double discrimination, and I think her her forthrightness about that does does a serious service for for um, Black women in the Northeast. Uh, th this chapter is looking at Northeastern women who were Miss Brazils and went on to represent the nation then in the Miss Universe pageant, and it's most of the time is spent on Marta Rocha, who was. Uh, Miss Brazil 1954, she was from Salvador da Bahia, and Marta is uh, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman, a voluptuous blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman. And this becomes kind of part and parcel of the story. She was absolutely stunning. And uh, she was sent on to Miss Universe with some debate about whether or not Brazil should be sending on a woman who looks more Brazilian. And I put that between scare quotes uh, and a debate about what does that mean? What does a woman looking more Brazilian even mean? Should, or even more pointedly, should we have sent along a woman who seems more Bahian, meaning Afro-Brazilian? Uh, but during that time, it's also well known that a black woman was not going to win Miss Universe in the United States of America. So Brazilians were sending sending along not only who they thought uh, not only who they thought was beautiful, but who they thought might win in the United States, uh, playing kind of a dangerous game of 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 guessing what the preferences of another nation might be aesthetically. Marta Rocha uh, was expected to actually win Miss Universe. Uh, all around, newspapers projected that she would win, and instead, uh, Miriam Stevenson, who was Miss USA. One And there are questions about why that was, uh, all sorts of explanations of it. But a rumor was started, a, a Brazilian reporter later said it was him that started it, that the reason that Marta Rocha won or didn't win was that she didn't have um, symmetrical proportions. She was not 34, 20, she was not 36, 24, 36, as Miriam Stevenson was. And instead, she was a little bit smaller on top and a little bit wider on the bottom. And this became uh, referred to as the famous two inches. That is the two inches around the hips or around uh, the butt, basically, um, that, would, that would be wrapped into understandings of Brazilian 
national identity, particularly Northeastern regional identity of preferring women of, um, of a, different, a different body shape than, than what North Americans would like. Uh, but this then gets you know, wrapped up into discussions in Cordell literature, in newspapers about what, what, a, what Brazilian beauty is and whether or not they should be pandering to United States understandings of beauty as well. Fascinating discussion there with continued relevance. I wanted to look uh, at this tantalizing, uh, because I would like for it to go on quite a bit longer, um, tantalizing chapter seven uh, of the book, A Defiant Northeast, the Movimiento de Cultura Popular and Banditry. And there you talk about um, Paulo Freire and other uh, other key actors. Could you say something about, uh, in in the relatively little time we have left, about this important chapter seven and defiant Northeast? Yes. Um, so Im- important to this chapter is uh, understanding that Brazilians, the Brazilian, the vote in, in Brazil was limited by literacy all the way up until 1988. Um so, as in there was a uh, in in the U.S. Uh, you say literacy test exactly. of some so- sort uh, to make one eligible for voting. Yes, you had to you had to sign your name before a notary, uh, and and be able to demonstrate that you could read and write in order to before a notary in order to um, to get a voter's registration in Brazil throughout. Um, parts of the imperial period and all of the Republican period up until uh, the constitution of 1988 with some very small exceptions that aren't worth going into right now. Um, but the, so in, in the Northeast of Brazil, illiteracy rates were shockingly high. They were around 60% in, in most parts of the Northeast, which meant that most adults couldn't vote. Uh, a movement called the Movimento de Cultura Popular, or the Popular Culture Movement, movement was formed by a couple, uh, Norma Porto Cajero and, and Germano Coelho, who had spent some time also in France studying and had had, uh, had spent some time with a movement in France uh, called Peuple et Culture, uh, also focused on education, uh, education as a social movement and as a way to shore up the strength of your culture. Uh, they came back to Hisifi and met with the socialist mayor, Miguel Reis, and uh, formed a, a social movement uh, that was intended to carry out all sorts of cultural activities. But the main, the main focus of the social movement was on expanding education um, to both children and adults. Um, for children, they started hundreds of schools in a very short span of time, a few years that they were in existence. They started hundreds of schools um, and uh, it, for adults, they, they had a kind of multi-pronged approach to trying to increase adult literacy among the poor. They had uh, a textbook that they used, a primer that they used um, along the, with radio uh, classes. So there would be a, a radio lesson based on the primer and there would be monitors in a classroom 
with actual students and I would then work through exercises together, but really anybody with that radio, with a radio or access to a radio in that primer could study along. Uh, and they also had Paulo Freire and, and um, uh, his group that were uh, working more with what they, uh, they, would, they would meet with communities, um, identify what their kind of cultural language was. And I mean that very much as language, uh, what words were important to them, what defined their work and their culture, and then they would create lessons uh, for literacy based out of that so that the, the community could learn, um, adults could participate in these learning groups that were based on their, on their own language and culture uh, in order to learn literacy and different, different phonetic variations. Um, they were incredibly successful in a very short amount of time. And both types of, of literacy program were, were copied and modified not only around Brazil, but around the world that they were picked up in other places. Um, but with the military dictatorship in 1964, they were closed down within, within 24 hours of the coup. Uh, there were uh, tanks, military tanks placed on their, their front garden uh, and they were, uh, their, their, their things were destroyed or burned and many of them went into exile. So it's, that was quite a bit of situ Situate us in time with, with that. Courtney, if you would. Sure. So the, the movement itself started in 1960, and the, um, the, the military coup was on April uh, March 31st to April 1st, 1964. So much covered here. So many other things we could talk about, uh, Courtney, but uh, we appreciate your time today. Could we wrap up by you saying, um, telling us a little bit about what you're working on these days? Sure. Uh, I am currently working on a, well, I'm always working on too much, um, but I'll, I'll highlight a, a few things if that's okay. Uh, the, the first is kind of a, an extension um, of my interest in, in Brazilian regionalism, uh, a series of workshops that I worked on with uh, Glenn Goodman out of, um, uh, formerly out of Urbana-Champaign and now out of uh, Arizona State, uh, called Brazilian Regionalism in a Global Context. And we are putting this together as an edited volume currently, and that is my first priority right now is, is finishing that up. Um, I am also working on two separate but related book projects, book link, monograph length projects. Uh, the first is Rebellious Women in the Brazilian Nation, and that is focused on, on different interpretations and representations of iconic historic Brazilian women in mostly 20th century media and art and how they're picked up at different moments in time to discuss different issues around nationalism in Brazil and, and, and Brazilian national identity. Um, part of that, kind of a, a branch off of, a strange branch off of that was that one of those women is Olga Benadio Prestes, who isn't Brazilian, but is kind of adopted as Brazilian. Olga was a German communist Jew. Um, she famously became the bodyguard for Luis Carlos Prestes on his return from the USSR and uh, helped to um, support the, the 1935 communist revolt in Brazil that was ultimately unsuccessful, was deported, pregnant with Prestes' child to Nazi Germany, where she uh, eventually 
was murdered uh, in a in a um, uh, concentration camp. Uh, but her child went on, survived and is still alive. And um, I, I'm I'm looking at her story and the story of Prestes as a kind of global history of anti-fascism that I hope unites uh, both Latin American uh, branches of, of, of leftist um, movements and, and anti-fascism with more European uh, tendencies. Well, thank you so much, Courtney, for your time today. We'll look forward to uh, the products of that fascinating research. The current book is Region Out of Place, the Brazilian Northeast in the World, 1924 to 1968, University of Pittsburgh Press, 2022. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Latin American Studies.